You're listening to Peace Out, a podcast hosted by Women Against Gun Violence. Due to the current pandemic, we will be conducting our interviews over Zoom, so we appreciate your patience with any technical difficulties. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us. Today I am joined and have the pleasure and honor of being accompanied by the founder of Women Against Gun Violence, Anne Rice Lane, as well as Deborah Gattel, a prominent member of Women Against Gun Violence's board. I first want to begin by thanking you both for your service in the activism community, as well as your dedication to Women Against Gun Violence's efforts to make our community safer. And so I want to begin by asking Anne, what drove you to create Women Against Gun Violence and really what were the events preceding? Oh my, well, I, you know, I've been in the volunteer community for all of my life and uh, the most, at that time I was serving on the police commission in Tom Bradley's administration, that's my phone, uh, and the, uh, there, there was, there were about a a thousand homicides in Los Angeles that year, 1993. And my friend Betty Friedan, who you may or may not recognize the name, was uh, called me one day and she said, Anne, I mean, Betty didn't ask you, she told you what to do. And she said, Anne, you have to start something because there's a big campaign on to sell guns to women. And we have to do something to stop that. Well, it, you know, <laughs> that was really nice of Betty to just dump that in my lap. But she seemed to feel that she could be helpful in getting us started. So we started with a big uh, meeting at USC and, and, uh, uh, and we invited everybody from every women's organization that we anybody knew about, national, international, and local. And there were a number, Handgun Control, for example, which is now the Brady Campaign, had already begun. And uh, they came and we had people from Northern California. And what they talked about was the campaign to sell guns to women. There were advertisements with beautiful ermine wraps and sitting at the bottom was a gun. I mean, this is kind of startling when you think about it. It was a, uh, a movement of, by the advertising agencies. And there were a lot of people who were working on the gun issue before I came along. And I want to be sure you know that we didn't invent it. But I met a woman who not only had lost one child, but a second child to another drive-by shooting. And her story was so emotionally damaging to me that I couldn't get it out of my head. So we decided that we would gather together people from women's organizations around Los Angeles County. We couldn't even dream of going nationwide because none of us had the ability or the resources or anything else to do that. So we started with a group of local people, women, and uh, we held a big fundraiser in Beverly Hills, and we made a terrible mistake. We didn't ask for money at the time. We gave them an envelope to take home, and two days later was the Northridge earthquake. And believe me, no one was interested in gun violence for the next year or so. So we had a hard time 
raising money in the beginning, but we managed to carry on. And uh, I have no personal experience with gun violence myself, but I have been very moved by the people who have, and that's my motivation. That is incredible and so inspiring. I can definitely say I read Betty Friedan's writing in my Gov class, so that is truly shocking and amazing to me. And so, Deborah, my question for you also is what inspired you to get involved in this organization and what really inspired you to stay? So, when I was living in New York um, in my late 20s, my mother used to call frantically all the time saying, Where are you? I haven't heard from you, you know, for years she called me. And if I, I didn't call her back, she was immediately calling family members. And at that time in 1999, the Columbine shooting happened. And here I was in New York City, you know, in the craziest town in the world. And here there were so many teens who were just blown away. And it just, it made a huge impact on my life. And then I moved to LA and coincidentally, I moved into um, a condo and my neighbor um, was in a wheelchair and I didn't know, uh, I didn't know, you know, he didn't seem like a war veteran, like a post 9-11 veteran. And it turns out he was one of the uh, students that were, what, that were, uh, that were shot. Um, at Columbine. So he was shot eight times and it just brought it together to me like, wow, like this is a reality and it lasts their whole lives. So, you know, here, here are the people that are the victims and then there are survivors who are living with, you know, really very, very challenging lives. So, um, and then a few years later was the Sandy Hook shooting. And at that time, I, I just really, embraced the movement and really wanted to become active with trying to just make help make gun sensible laws and met Margot Bennett, the executive director, and just uh, really, you know, meshed with the people and, and the values. And uh, that's why I've stayed in is just the community is very passionate and share a lot of the same ideas about sensible gun laws as I do. On that same note, and I really want to know what has motivated you to continue diligently fighting for so long, given that some may bring up the argument where, where you know, gun death rates have decreased since WAGV's founding. You know, what more is there to do? A lot of people may say that. So how would you respond to that? One, one gun death is really too many for me. And I do believe that we have a very different role to play now than we did in 1992 or three, when frankly, what we were about was victims of gun violence. We spent a lot of time at, at that period going through the records at the Department of Health to determine who had been shot. And then we were able to go, I mean, in those days you could walk into the Department of Public Records and, and get records, but now you have to have like written permission from everybody. Anyway, we would bring back the names of the people and the address at which they lived. And then we took all that information and coordinated it with political districts. And we then were able to produce a document and send 
letters to every elected official and say, in your district in 1990, whatever, four or five, six, the following people died. And it was a very powerful tour to get the members of the legislature or the supervisors or the city council. And at the same time, we were very active working with the Los Angeles City Council and our current city attorney, Mike Fuhr, who was then a council member, to pass local gun laws. And the state had declared that they and only they could pass gun laws. And so our first task was to unbind that and make it possible for local jurisdictions to pass the gun laws they wanted. We passed an incredible number of, of really quite revolutionary concepts. We angered the NRA on a regular basis and <laughs> delight was in that. So it's, for me, I've spent my life as a, I guess I don't describe myself as an activist. I, I describe myself as a participant. I'm not, until recently, I'd never march for anything. I want, I'm a problem solver. And so everything that I try to do is to solve the problem, not to raise the issue. And mm -hmm. there's a role for everybody in this. And I happen to have opportunities that a lot of other people didn't have because I was on Mayor Bradley's commissioner list for 20 years. And by that time, I knew everybody in government. And uh, so that was really my role in all of this. That is incredible. And with that being said, with addressing the issue more from a problem solving standpoint, as opposed to a, you know, simply just marching and raising the issue, how would you suggest individuals who don't have connections in government or rather distrusting of the government, how do you think they should approach problem solving when it comes to issues such as guns where legislation is so needed? Sounds like a perfect question for Debbie. <laughs> I think, you know, for the most part, we have to get people to recognize that this is a real issue that affects every single person in communities, rich, poor, black, white, Asian. And it's just something that people need to care about. And we're just talking about, you know, we're, for, for my standpoint, I don't even try to get involved with saying, I don't think you should own a gun, you know, don't own a gun. This is, I try not to get into those discussions. I try to get into focusing on safety and having gun safety. So that's where I come from and just trying to have sensible gun laws and try not to get, because I do know a lot of those people who are very non-trusting of the government and I don't even try to go there. I just talk about safety and try to, you know, really explain to them the statistics I don't know if that helps. That's a hard question. For sure. <laughs> Thank you for taking it. I Well, in the past years, gun violence and how gun violence is portrayed and how it's really been happening has definitely evolved. Not evolved. I don't want to say evolved. But it has definitely changed throughout the years where my I, I was born three years post-Columbine and I lived through Sandy Hook and Parkland was right in the middle of my high school career. Mm -hmm. So my view on gun violence is very much so, I think of school shootings primarily. Yeah. And I think with the publicization of that kind of type of gun violence, I think comes 
the unfortunate disregard of the pre-existing instances of gun violence that have existed for decades. And when I say that, I mean especially gun violence within minority communities. And Anne, I know you served as the police commissioner, if I'm correct, for some time. And I know that police brutality is a very big issue among activists in regarding gun violence. So given that you have the perspective of police officers, how would you say that we should approach this issue since it so directly relates to gun violence and since it tends to be buried in the sand far too often? Well, I'm not sure I get your point. You're you're saying that people, young people who are more concerned about school shooting, their issue is with law enforcement? No, rather um, my perception and like generally my generation's perception of gun violence is school shootings. And because that is what the media tends to focus on, which causes us to kind of not see the other side of gun violence, which often manifests itself as police brutality and violence in minority communities. So I'm asking how you think we should approach that issue in order to kind of make the the fight more cohesive as opposed to fragmented as it may be right now. Oh, I wish I could come up with some answer for you. It's just been going on for as long as I have been involved in in local government. There's always this fight between law enforcement and the perception by the, particularly the communities of color that the cops are against them. Sometimes it's true, many times it's not. And I think wiser heads than mine have made this attempt to understand what it is that might mitigate this. We spent at least two years because my two years on the police commission was after the riots of 1993. The, the, I was appointed when, when the police brutality issue was a very serious concern. I don't want to sound like a promotional officer for the police department, but you cannot believe how much that department has changed. Not just since 1993, but since the days I started working for Mayor Bradley, which was in 1978, 73. The chiefs prior to the last few would definitely defend the action of the officers. But every police chief since I've known has made a tremendous effort to build better community relations. And I'm not sure that whether you have a gun or use a gun in the minority community is related to how that person views the police department. Perhaps it does. I I don't know. You might have a better view of that than I. But I think the, the large proportion of people who live in minority communities really want the police to keep law and order. They, they don't want to be abused, but they certainly want to be defended against the bad elements in their communities. So it's, it's really a tough issue for both the communities and the police department, I think. I want to just comment on something that Deborah said that I'm very proud of since I had absolutely nothing to do with it. There's been an ongoing effort by uh, <clears throat> several members of the board to get school districts to adopt a letter to go home 
to every parent, and this occurred in Los Angeles School District, to telling them about the gun safety needs to lock up their guns. And I think that kind of issue is something, there aren't a lot of you know people marching in the street for having parents receive the information, but as I understand it, it's taken off across California, and now if a parent receives such a letter, they have to sign it, that they read it and send it back. So I, I think that's a really major change in what's going on because too often parents don't understand that because they thought they had hidden the gun well, that no kid had access to them. But we've seen in, in school shootings, often the gun the source of the gun is the family gun. So that would be my kind of response to a lot of things is what's the solution to this problem? And that is a step in the direction. Okay, Saba, I had to uh, Google this quote, um, but I just want to pull it up. It says, uh, it was from Christine Todd Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey. She, she said, anyone who thinks that they're too small to make a difference has never tried to fall asleep with a mosquito in the room. So what she's saying is people can join local GFP groups, get involved with things just to be that mosquito. Mm -hmm. But I think that's part of what we try to do is to really inspire people to, you know, a little person can take one step that can make a really big difference. Absolutely, I agree. And I think I definitely have felt that being able to be involved in women against gun violence and being able to at least do my part, especially since I'm not a voting age, not just yet, give it a couple mm -hmm. months. But kind of going off of that, I think I'm just personally curious to know for both of you, what is your proudest accomplishment in the times in which you have been involved with this issue, whether it's a personal accomplishment or a broader sort of initiative that was accomplished, I just would really like to know and kind of put things into perspective in terms of people who are involved in these sort of things. I'll speak. I have, I'm very proud of the victims of gun violence that we have given aid and comfort to. One of our board members was really the inspiration for a lot of what I do. Their seven-year-old son was in his mother's car picking up a trophy soccer trophy. His little brother was in the back seat in the car seat and, and two gang members went on either side of the car, shot and killed the seven-year-old and wounded his little brother. That family are still part of Women Against Gun Violence. So for me, the most satisfying thing is to help victims mm -hmm. become activists. That's what our goal was, to turn grief into action. And I think we have a whole bunch of people that fit that mold. Absolutely. And I am, I think that was, that is definitely a primary issue where we empower victims and where we empower people who are often set aside and deemed simply statistics when we empower them and we give them voices that definitely not only proliferates the fight, but expands it and makes and gives it like true meaning. And building, building off of that, because I think the gun issue as it's described in politics tends to be very polarizing when it's being discussed by politicians, by community members, by students alike. Mm -hmm. It tends to be very polarizing, tends to be very tense. And so with that being said, 
in your experience or what you observe, what do you think is the greatest obstacle that people act advocating for gun safety tend to face when they are trying to reach their goals of increased safety and regulation and things like that? And that's for Anne. I mean, <laughs> you've, you've seen this from, you know? Well, I have to laugh. About 20 years ago, I was invited to speak to a group of, actually they were uh, trustees of, of private foundations. And there were a lot of men and, and I was in sort of my phase when I didn't really care who I offended. So <laughs> I got up and I start talking about gun violence and I say, well, what I really do think the problem is that it's males trying to assert their maleness. And I wanna tell you that group, <laughs> they didn't know whether to laugh or boo or what it was they were trying to do. I think I was even a little more graphic than that. But it was, it was sort of for me, my crowning moment. Because I do think that that's part of the problem is that these guys, they just don't know how to assert themselves in any other way. So they have to have a gun. They feel insecure. And who knows whether their sexual prowess is involved in all of this? I have no idea. But it certainly seems to me that, that the disproportionate number of gun owners are male. They're young. Well, not so young. And if you talk to them, some of them are just angry. And so that's what they do. And it's not in violation exactly of the whole concept of the American West, and they see themselves as part of that whole period of time. And I think, too, the NRA has marketed mm -hmm. you know, really well, like, the good guy with a gun. You know? I think they've done a really good job with that, of, of these people thinking that they're going to be defending, you know, when a, you know, assault weapon is coming to them, they're somehow going to be able to, you know, rescue people, but also just um, defending, my, you know, forget about having a security um, system at home, ring, nest, ADT, any of those. Um, it's like, no, I'm, I'm going to have a gun. So if someone comes into my house, I can shoot them. It's, it seems like a very aggressive option. I mean, that's why we do pay, we have, you know, tax paying dollars to invest in a police force. So anyway, just wanted to add to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with both of you, especially with you and I myself have faced the heat every now and again by pointing out the presence of toxic masculinity and how it relates to guns, whether directly or indirectly, because as you know, men are socialized to believe that they have to assert themselves and that they have to display some sort of dominance. And far too often it manifests itself in the acquisition of a gun, which the presence in and of itself, I think, poses danger to those around it because a gun kills people and it is meant to kill people. And like what you said, Deborah, I think it is mis misconstrued where it's it says the good guy with the gun, but the good guy with the gun is still going to be killing another human being. And I think when we are trying to devise solutions to break-ins, to robberies, to burglaries, to simple muggings, I don't think the solution is to put the other person down. I think de-escalation is always and should be our primary course of action. 
as human beings, I don't think killing another human being should be the end all of that sort of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, let's be honest. I think we have a very violent culture Mm -hmm. and it's not a new thing. I mean, this has been going on since the beginning of our country, founding our country. Um, we are built on a very violent culture. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's part of it. And everyone's freedom to be able to have a weapon to defend themselves. So I think there's a lot that has to be done, you know, with our society and change. And I'm, and I'm hoping it's your generation. Me too. But, you know, the, uh, seriously, students, I'm hoping that, you know, after being affected so so much from the Parkland shootings and just every day another shooting, whether it's, you know, an, a, children, a child picking up, you know, a gun thinking it's a toy or suicides, which make, make up two thirds of all gun fatalities, um, which no one even talks about. So it's like the, the, the thing that people really focus on are these like really mass shootings, which are very actually not even They've become more common, but it's certainly not the bulk of gun fatalities. So for suicide, you know, that's actually the most. And one thing that I wanted to go back to you and tell you about is one of the things that I'm very proud about is being involved with WADVA when we really, we had a a learning summit about suicides and, and guns, firearms and suicides. And we realized that there's a huge lack of information, a lack of discussion about gun fatalities with suicides. And so we decided to look around and we realized that within LA, there are no warning signs when you go to a gun retailer or when you go to um, you know, a shooting range. There's no, hey, this, you know, if you're feeling this way, call this number. And so what we did is we worked with the um, city politicians, the uh, city council, and worked on it for about, I think it was over a year. It, it, wasn't, it was a very slow process. And you wouldn't believe how hard just to say, hey, can we put up suicide prevention signs in places where that's where the bulk of suicides happen is through guns. So, you know, can we have signs up? And it really took, yeah, so it took over a year And finally, it did pass, and it now actually is mandatory that guns in Los Angeles City, that there is suicide prevention sign in gun retailers and and gun ranges. And that, to me, was, that was actually a real step. And, you know, we didn't have any connections. I didn't, you know, I didn't know any politicians. Um, You know, obviously, we talked to people, but it's just having persistence and having passion that you know that you're doing the right thing. And once you have that conviction, you're that getting back to that annoying mosquito. So, you know, again, with that energy, that really helps ground you. Because, you know, it's like every day, if you read the news, you're going to see that they're shooting after shooting and it becomes almost overwhelming. So just chipping away at sensible laws or, you know, proactively trying to make sensible laws is, is helpful. Absolutely. I mean, one small step is monumental, especially in an inefficient sort of culture where there is sensory overload with so many issues at once. Any, any little thing we can get really does proliferate the fight. And so I see our time has cut far too short for my liking, but I do, I do want to end by asking you both 
not only as a teenager and as someone who wants to continue in activism, not only in gun violence, but with everything and anything. I, I want to know where you both would like to see this fight go. How would you like it to evolve? How do you think it should change? And how would you like it to continue? I think California has done a really incredible job in passing gun laws. I don't think there are too many other states about which I would say that. We're just a local organization, I say just, but there are national organizations that have been working at this issue for a long time, and we'd like to support state organizations. There's an organization of state local gun violence prevention organizations. We like to work with them. I don't see our role as becoming a national organization. It's, it's important that we be a role model for a lot of other places. And I think that at this moment, I'm going to give a little credit here to our executive director who has a vision and who works tirelessly to carry out that vision. And I think that I'm an ex officio member of the board now. I think it's time for some younger people to take over. So I'm thrilled that that we have Deborah who's here to speak also. And I know we have a really active board. And I think they're they're so committed and so anxious to spread the word. I know this issue of, of sending letters home from school principals to people was initiated here in Los Angeles, but it's actually been carried out in many other areas, many other jurisdictions. I like to think of us as as an innovator and a leader that others will follow. I think in this time of so much uncertainty about what any of us are going to be doing next Tuesday, I don't think it's very possible for people to make bigger, grander plans. We all just like to get out of the house. I definitely agree. Yes. So I would again like to thank you both for being here. It is a pleasure and a honor and a privilege to be able to speak with you both and to, and to be able to get your perspective on such a prevalent issue. And I also want to thank you both for being here, especially in light of these global pandemic circumstances. It warms my heart to see that this fight continues and that the discussion continues, even when it seems like our lives are all on pause. So with that being said, for our listeners out there, thank you for listening and thank you for being with us and peace out.